I am not an innocent, not bystander. An innocent bystander. I am a threat, am a threat, to, my threat enemy. to my enemy. I am powerful I am and cunning. Powerful. I am strategic, I am strategic and, bold. and bold. I will not sit idly by. I will take ground. I will advance. I will tear through my enemy. And my enemy will hate me. I will not avoid the difficult fight. I will fight. I will be wounded. I will be targeted and I will bleed. I will not tire. My wounds will be healed. I will see tragedy. I will feel pain. But I will be restored. My feet will not stumble. My hands will hold fast. I will not be intimidated. Chapter 12, we're cruising now, and the topic is the role of the man. And sometimes a man can be a husband, and that's right. If some crumb snatchers will pop on the scene, what happens? He becomes a father, okay? And that's what we're going to talk about. Once again, continuing in our theme, the biblical family roles, okay? Now we're getting specific with the roles. The first one, the man, the husband, and the father. There it says at the top of page 147, what is our standard for manhood, okay? And before we get into, obviously, the correct answer, let's just uh, throw it open a little bit tonight. Uh, what does society, what do people say, doesn't have to be the correct answer, I know there's that pressure in Christian Bible studies. You, you always, if you say God or Jesus, nine times out of ten, you get it right. I understand that pressure. What does society say? What is the, what, what makes me for a great man? What define manhood? Men don't cry. Men don't cry. Don't cry. Hey, you know what? I tell you what. There's one movie on the planet that will get you. And that's that movie about that dog that dies called Hachi. You ever seen that thing? Yeah. Oh, man. I tell you what. If you think nobody on the earth will cry... Or if that's your weird way to get back at them, give them that movie. Maybe that's a rough one. Anyway, whatever. Men don't cry. That's what it is. And so if you just don't cry as a guy, that rhymes too. What's going on? If you just don't cry as a guy, <laughs> does that make you a man? Are you successful in God's eyes because you didn't cry? That's, that's one. What else makes for manhood? A leader, strong. Okay, you guys are starting to do the Christianese thing. Leader, okay, strong. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, back there, yeah, yeah. Are you just scratching your arm? Okay. okay, it's cool. Well, I hope it feels better. But anyway, that's right. Anything else? Yeah. Money, the provider. Okay. Armchair quarterback, sports. That's right. Intriguing. That's interesting. Anything else? Pink. Gosh, I did that one time here, and honestly, that's the last time I'm going to do it. So, I'm not kidding. What, what's it? Carries a what? A gun? The spirit of John Wayne is all over you tonight. That's right. And you need to get a cowboy hat next time. Skip that sucking cowboy. What do you think? Pilgrim? All right, anything else? What it makes for a great man? A man. You're a man, man. That guy's a, that's manhood right there. Fast car. Man, I tell you what, he, car, he doesn't cry and he drives a fast car. That's a guy. That's all you got to do, man. It's simple. Anything else? <laughs> Never ask for directions. Hey, guys, I said that before. Man, I'm here to help you tonight. I've said this before, but pay attention. The Bible actually says that Abraham, when he was called out of the Ur of the Chaldees, he left not knowing where he was going. Don't need directions. Thank you, as a guy. Okay. Uh, but anyway, manhood, that's what society says. But see, the problem is, how's our society doing when it comes to men? Are we excelling? So I would say that probably the bulk of this isn't what it means to be. Listen, here's the thing, because anybody can be a man, if you're a man, okay? <laughs> that doesn't make you a godly man, okay? And you can be a Christian man, but that doesn't mean, the key phrase here, guys, is are you a godly Christian?
Christian man. And if our country's ever going to get back on track, if there's ever going to be revival in the church and then revival in our nation, we need godly Christian men. Not Christian men, godly Christian men. Let's take a look at this uh, uh, story. Here's what the guy says. He says, I remember my dad getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning, loading up his carpenter's tools, and heading out to work. His return would usually occur around 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. when he would hug and kiss my mom, uh, eat a home-cooked meal that she had prepared, and soon head to bed, only to have the same routine the next weekday. On the weekends, my father was an avid hunter and fisherman. My three brothers and I benefited greatly by the time he spent with us, and he took care to teach us the essentials of hunting and fishing and gradually allowed us to take more and more responsibility for carrying out the hobby on our own, under his guidance, of course. And his pattern was the same with gardening, working on cars, carpentry, and there it is, act. Okay, as I grew up and entered high school, I got a summer job uh, to have some spending money during the school year, and I would get up early in the morning, work hard all day at my construction job, return home to eat, and then retire for the evening. The same pattern I had seen where? In my father during the, what kind of years? Formatives. Who's forming the kids' minds today? Society. Okay, you're getting it in a secular school system is what's doing it. You're getting peer pressure who's also being informed by that. But the biggest one too is the media. You combine these two together, folks, and that's what's doing that. Okay, and it just goes round and round and round it goes. But during the formative years, his dad was doing that. Now that I have a son... I have found myself teaching him how to do things in the same way my father taught me. I will do the task for him first, then with him along with verbal instruction, then slowly trust him with more responsibility as he gets it. And what's my point? My point is that I got much of my understanding of what? Manhood. How to be a man. How to be father, fathering from the pattern that my what? My father lived out before me. Okay? He says, by God's grace, I had an excellent model, but many young men and women today do not have that privilege. Now, let me give you by way of contrast. Now, this might sound old-fashioned, but uh, actually this, um, not that old, but this wasn't that long ago. That's how I grew up. My dad's the hardest working guy still to this day uh, that I've ever met on the planet. I've never seen anybody work his tail off like that. And I, actually, some of you guys here too, as I've been around you. But it's just, that's my dad. And he instilled that in my brother and I. Uh, from we high. You want to eat? That was, the, that was a simple rule in our house. Want to eat? <laughs> you like them clothes you're wearing? <laughs> right. You want to use some soap once in a while and you take a bath, hopefully once a month? Okay. Uh, he who makes the gold makes the golden rules. Okay. You, you know, that was my dad. You work. You want, you want to stay warm? You're out there chopping wood with the rest of the family. Right? You, you're out, oh, you, you'll enjoy it. You want, yeah, you got, everybody's going to do chores around here. No options. You do it. No whining. No, you, uh, excuse, oh, did you know we had to do it and we didn't get paid for it? It was the pleasure of food. Okay. That's what we were raised on. It's not that long ago. But we have drastically changed from that. And let me give you that. How many of you guys remember the ant and the grasshopper story? That analogy thing. Let me read to you the classic one. And let me read to you the revised one for today. And you see if it sounds familiar. Uh, here's the classic one. Uh, if you remember, the ant works hard uh, in the withering heat all summer long. Building his house and laying up supplies for the winter, right? The grasshopper, though, laughs at him. Thinks he's a fool. He laughs. He's dancing. He's goofing around. Playing the whole summer, right? So what happens? If you recall the story, come winter, the ant is warm and well-fed, right? The grasshopper has no food or shelter, and he dies out in the cold. Remember that story? Here's today. The ant works hard in the withering heat all summer long, building his house and laying up supplies for the winter. The grasshopper thinks he's a fool, and he laughs, and he dances, and he plays the summer away. Now, come winter, the shivering grasshopper calls a press conference and demands to know why the ant should be allowed to be warm and well-fed, while other less fortunates are cold and starving. So a national news show uh, shows up to provide pictures of the shivering grasshopper next to a video of the ant in his comfortable home with a table filled with food. The nation is stunned by the sharp contrast. How can this be that in a country of such wealth, this poor grasshopper is allowed to suffer so? The opposition party stage a demonstration in front of the ant's house where news stations film the group singing, We Shall Overcome. A local government uh, a rants in an interview with Celebrity News reported that the ant has gotten rich off the backs of grasshoppers and calls for an immediate tax hike on the ant to make him pay for his fair share. Well, finally, the government drafts the Economic Equity and Anti-Grasshopper Act retroactive from the beginning of the summer. It is fine for failing to hire green bugs for help and having nothing left to pay his retroactive taxes. His home is confiscated by the government. 
Now the story ends as we see the grasshopper finishing up the last bits of the ant's food while the government house he's in, which just happens to be the ant's old house, crumbles around him because he doesn't maintain it. The ant is, has disappeared in the snow, the grasshopper is found dead in a drug-related incident, and the house, now abandoned, is taken over by a gang of spiders who terrorized the once peaceful neighborhood. <laughs> that is so stinking true. And it's happened in one generation. Why? Oh, because we don't have enough midnight basketball leagues or we don't have enough of these programs. We... No. Because what we've been studying, folks, there's been a massive attack on the family. And the leader of the family, the man, has been redefined and it's all messed up. And it rolled downhill and only took one generation. This is what's the problem. All right, let's continue on. It says, much of the breakdown of the family is the result of a poor father figure or no father figure. That's a whole other epidemic. Okay, at all. Taking into account this fact combined with the culture's redefining of masculinity, what it means to be a man, father, and husband, is it any, a little wonder that the family is falling apart uh, in our society? Okay, this is why it's important for us to look at the biblical, underlying that biblical definition, because everybody's got their own ideas, all this list. But if we're going to get back on track, it's the biblical definition of a man, a husband, and a father. This is going to help us to reestablish that divine pattern, which if followed, listen, will restore hope of future generations, all right? So what is the character of a Christian man, all right? Well, before dealing with these specific roles and the responsibilities of the biblical man, family, the society, in the church, we're gonna take a look at what should characterize, that's your first blank there, what should characterize the Christian man who is walking in obedience to Jesus Christ, meaning spirit-filled, meaning as we saw before, that means you're under the control of the spirit. He's the one who is empowering you and guiding you. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he gives a list of qualifications for elders in the church, men, and he also gives a similar list in Titus. Several of these qualifications deal specifically with leadership, but others deal with character qualities. Okay, and since the leadership is men, what do you guys guess would probably be some good character qualities for men in general, Christian men, to strive for? Oh, I don't have to do that because that's just for the elders or the deacons. Excuse me? It's for any man. You want to be a, not just Christian man, you want to be a godly Christian man. Hey, it's good for you uh, as well. That any Christian man who is striving to make Christ the Lord of his life should possess. I have to say this again. I kick it when I get here. Uh, when I see this, you don't make Christ the Lord of your life. He is the Lord whether you make him that or not. It's you need to acknowledge that and the way you demonstrate you really acknowledge that not just with your lips it's with your life okay but anyway uh, they form a good checklist for what uh, uh, God desires for us to be men of God so let's take a look at that and instead of just reading it from here let's go ahead and open our Bibles to first uh, Timothy 3 first Timothy chapter 3 let's take a look at some characters of a godly Christian man first Timothy 3 and uh, verses 1 through Seven, okay, First Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, all right? Now, here's a trustworthy saying, okay? If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, okay, he desires a what? Horrible task. No, noble task, okay? Now, the overseer must be what? Above reproach. The husband of but one wife. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. What, are you a legalist? No, it's common sense. Hello, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how in the world is he going to take care of God's church? That's your little experiment group, okay? How are you doing with that? Okay, and if you can't do that, what in the world are you being put in a position with a whole bunch of people? That's what he's saying. It's crazy. He said he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil, pride. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. All right. And what we're going to do basically in this study, however long until the magical moo uh, goes off, uh, uh, is we're going to go and we're going to break down these characteristics. Okay. And that's what we see in the book. And, and the first one is above reproach. Wow. That sounds manly right there, doesn't it? I mean, we all know what that Christianese phrase is. Hey, I'm above reproach. Because reproach is only about that high. So I'm, what, what's that mean? 
Well, let's take a look at it, okay? The Greek word means not able to be taken hold of, irreproachable. It is not only that the man has a good report among the people, but he's deserving of it, okay? The word implies not only that the man is of good report, but he is deservedly so. The other character qualifications that are listed that follows this are simply amplifications of that qualification, okay? The overarching idea in the Christian character is to be, here's your next two blanks, above reproach. Well, that's okay. I want to break it down for you a little bit more. Let's bust into it. The Greek actually is the, uh, the Greek word anapoleptos. Let's say that. Anapoleptos. Huh? And you all know what that means, right? Yeah, good thing I'm not preaching online. Okay, and it means this. Let me break it out. It means not apprehended, uh, that which cannot be laid hold of, Okay, not open to censure, not, uh, he's irreproachable, okay? In fact, what's interesting is in the Greek, must, okay, is, is the Greek word uh, day, and that is actually what's called an imperative, okay? So he's saying there is, it's an absolute necessity. You get all that just from the one the little Greek article. It's not just you need to be above reproach. He says it is an absolute necessity, men, you have to be this guy who is above reproach, Okay? Let me give you another word that's probably a better understanding for us. Is this guy has got to be blameless. Right? Now, this doesn't mean perfect because no guy can be perfect. Okay? What it means is this guy, okay, is uh, somebody who in the present tense, the pattern of his life is blameless. He's irreproachable. He's above reproach. There's, it's, a, it's a guy who you look at and you go, uh, you don't look at and you go, hey, yeah, we all know brother so-and-so. He's pretty good, but everybody knows about that sin. There's nothing to lay hold of this guy. I'm not saying he's perfect. Because as men, how many guys can realize that we, including myself, we're not perfect? Right? And if you think you are, just ask your wife real quick and we'll take a moment of pause. Okay, it was verified. But anyway, so, uh, but no, we, we were not perfect, right? But as a pattern of life, can somebody say that, man, it's really hard to stick anything on that guy. I mean, he's walking so godly. He's walking. This is why it's the top characteristics and the rest of them flow. This guy, the pattern of his life, I can't find what there's. It's like the Teflon guy. Just nothing sticks. You lay charges at this guy and everybody goes, you're crazy. You're nuts. Don't see that. This guy is above reproach okay his life is not marred by some sin some vice or some evil be it a habit be it an incident be it an attitude okay uh, uh, and, and there's not anything in this life that you can point to uh, that would uh, as he is the leader leading by example that's going to lead people into sin uh, it, 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 maybe this guy uh, he, he doesn't have you know a, a preoccupation with material things this guy doesn't have an ego problem he doesn't have an attitude problem he doesn't have a lustful problem he doesn't have an argumentative spirit he's not indifferent to the needs of others he's not a liar he's not a cheat he's not a thief okay this is a guy who is an example in the context here of course the church but as men this is the guy we need to be at home Right? Even if your family goes south, you need to be that man who they say, no, you, you, no, that's not my dad. That's not my husband. No, hey, you know. That's what it means to be above reproach. John MacArthur, he says, whatever the leadership is, eventually, listen to this, will reflect in the church. Okay? You can meet people from a church and if they've uh, been going there for a long time, they're going to mirror to you the standard established by the leaders of that church. And frankly, he says, it's, uh, it isn't so much what they say, it's what they are. People will only follow what you say if it's consistent with what you are. If you're less than what you say, they follow the lesser standard and become rather what uh, uh, you are rather than what you say. So as a leader, we set the bar, right? I, just, I think it was Spurgeon said, you want to you know the test of a, a, a church's a spiritual thermometer? It ain't Sunday. It's your Wednesday service. Prayer service, Bible study. This is the spiritual depth of sunrise. Why is such a statement? Because why don't we have the same attendance on Wednesdays as we do on Sundays? It's, it's just one more time a week. What's the big deal? I mean, Jesus went all the way to the cross, right? He walked the road to Calvary. Can't you come out for another study? Just one? If you love him, you seek him. You long for him. You serve him. You obey him. You want to learn about him. You want to be a disciple. Right? It's a spiritual thermometer. Okay? 
And that's convicting uh, for me just in years of ministry. Because you can be fooled by just your Sunday attendance. But what he said here is this guy, this leader, if he has, if he's not above reproach, and if he's below with the moral decay of everybody else, guess how it's going to reflect in the church? The church rises to the standard. And if you don't have a standard, or if your standard's below here, that's as far as it goes. You don't like the standard in the church? You don't like the behavior of the church? What do you do? You compromise? You play games? No. You keep the bar up there. No matter how much people kick or scream or cry or do whatever. You keep the standard up there. And over time, hopefully by the Spirit of God, things begin to change. This is this leader. This is what a godly, not a Christian man, a godly Christian man is. Not just in the church, in the home, in the workplace, wherever you go. You set the standard. Okay? Next one is he's a husband of one wife. Uh, there's been many different interpretations of what Paul means by this phrase. Some said this means that the elder must be married, and as a result, uh, single men can't be elders. Well, that seems unlikely since Paul himself was single and encouraged those who could to remain single or do so. Uh, it would also mean that those who lost their wives to death, widows, would have to step down as elders. Understanding that the overarching idea here is to be above reproach, Okay, we see that this was certainly not Paul's meaning. Since never having been married does not, a man, uh, does not keep a man from being above reproach, nor does losing one's wife uh, to death. The Greek phrase here, this is what's key, guys, is, can be translated one woman man. Okay, in fact, that's what it is in the Greek. Anarches gune, gune for wife. In fact, if you want to uh, score some points again tonight, uh, man, if you're here with your wife, just say, agathe gune. It's a good woman. Huh? Did it work, ladies? Yeah, it never worked for me either, but I tried it years back. But anyway, that's right. Uh, a good woman. That's literally what it means there. It's just three Greek words there, and it just means a one-woman man. That's it. It doesn't even say husband. That's implied in the text. And that's where people get uh, confused. Well, if he's not married, he's not. No. He's saying that this guy has to be a one-woman man. Paul means that those that are married should be solely devoted, is your blank there, solely devoted to their wives. Whether married or single, a Christian man, listen, is not to be flirtatious. Alright? One guy says the sense is that he has nothing to do with any other woman. He must be a man who cannot be taken hold of on the score of sexual promiscuity or laxity. Paul is talking about sexual moral behavior. This guy is a one-woman man. Obviously the big one of adultery physically, but also even I would say in today visual adultery with pornography or something like that. The idea is right after, again, that's why this first characteristic in this context, he says above reproach. This guy, what falls down after this first one, blamelessness, he's got to be a one woman man. He has to be a person who if he is married, he is completely devoted just to her. He's not lazy with his eyes. He's not flirtatious with other gals. Why? Because unfortunately, oftentimes, with men, being in the church, being in the home, if you're not careful with your eyes, what's that lead to? It'll lead to your downfall. Downfall into the church, bring a stain on the church, downfall in your family, destroy your marriage. So right after blamelessness, hey, you better be a one-woman man. You better be careful with your eyeballs. And you better be solely devoted to her and keep your heart on her. He loves only one woman. He desires only one woman. He can only think about one woman. His heart is for one woman. And that is the wife, if he's married, that God gave him. Keeps him in line. All right, let's take a look. He goes on. Uh, temperate is another one that he uses here. He uses this in Titus. The Greek word here means to be sober, sober-minded, or clear-headed. The word originally meant abstinence from alcohol, but here it's got a wider metaphorical sense. The Christian man should strive to logically, is your blank there, logically think through his actions using everybody's opinion as his guide. No, God's word is his guide. Now, this is coupled with another word there, prudent, okay? How many guys this week could say that, wow, I was prudent, even knows what that means, right? That's why I love this stuff. That's why I love breaking this down. The Greek word here means to be self-controlled, okay, or thoughtful. Uh, self-control is one of the greatest evidences of a spirit-controlled Christian. Why? Because guess what? It's going to help keep you to be that blameless guy, that guy who's a one-woman man who looks straight ahead with his eyeballs. Self-control. 
right? All this falls in line here, okay? And that's what he says. Uh, the, the words here that this basically, another good thing, you, you couple these two together, the basically, it's, it, this is a guy who's not out of control, okay, is another good way to look at that. Also that this guy has a clear head, a clear purpose, a clear direction. This guy has no excess, if you will. He doesn't go to extremes. He's not hung up on secondary issues. He's not hung up on, hey, if you don't wear a suit in church, you're going to be demon-possessed. He's not hung up on Christian politics. He's not hung up on all that stuff. This guy is a model of virtue. He's blameless, one-woman man, and he's self-controlled. He's clear-minded. He's not clouded. When this guy speaks, he's well-disciplined, he knows what he's talking about, and he is serious about spiritual issues. This guy is clear-minded. This also carries it with the idea of the, the spiritual sense. In other words, this guy has a well-disciplined mind, not just when it comes with dealing with temptation, but when it comes to spiritual things. This guy, he chooses, he's well-disciplined. He's not out of control. When he thinks about things, when he puts things in his mind, it's not foolish things. You know what, i tell you what, all this week I finally got it down. It took me 9.37 years, but I was finally able to memorize everybody who won the Super Bowl for the last 27 years. <laughs> and I can name their offensive line. Whoa! What a leader, what a man. Is football a sin? No. But can you become out of control? Can you become clouded by putting things in your mind in the grand scheme of things? What's that got to do with eternity? Anybody watch football? I watch football if I get a chance. I don't have a problem with it. But you can get off track on things. And the enemy's out there with, with guys, anything and everything, but being serious, clear-minded, under control, self-control about spiritual things. Right? That's what this guy uh, is called uh, to be. This is a, I like what MacArthur says, he, this is a serious man. He says, now this doesn't mean there's no place for humor. Any good leader is able to use and enjoy humor. Okay, repeat after me. I love your opening jokes every Sunday, Pastor Billy. <laughs> oh, none of you. Anyway, but uh, there's a seriousness though about his life that commands a seriousness of his own mind. The longer you serve the Lord, the longer you live in the world, the more you begin to see the world through the eyes of God, you begin to see it through the tears of Jesus. And the more that you see the world for what it is, and the more you see the lostness of men, and the more you see the disobedience to God, and the inevitability of hell, and all the struggles and the problems of sin, and the less frivolity there is in your heart. It doesn't mean that you're a guy who reigns on everybody's parade. It doesn't mean you have no joy in your life. It doesn't mean you can't laugh. It does mean, though, that there is a pervasive sense in the seriousness of life and ministry. Why? Because this guy is not out of control. He's got a clear head, self-control. His, his attitude is this. There's no more seriousness serious business than the father's business. God comes first. That's not just a Christian man. That's a godly Christian man. And that's who we need to be. Let's continue on. It says respectable there. The Greek word means orderly uh, and honorable. Uh, Locke says the term implies well-ordered demeanor, but also the orderly fulfillment of all duties and the ordering of the inner life. Is your next two blanks there? From which these spring, inner life, okay, is what he's talking about here. Uh, hospitable is the next one that he talks about there at the top of page 149. Uh, also uh, in Titus 1.8, the word means that he has an open house uh, to those who are in need or those traveling uh, to minister in his church in other uh, cities is what he's talking about. Uh, the next one is able to teach there. He says in Titus 1.9, uh, he says this is the only difference in the qualifications between elders and deacons. Okay? The Greek word means skilled in teaching. All right, we've talked about this before. The Bible talks about in Ephesians 4, the five-fold ministry, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Five, right? Actually, we saw it's a conjunction that's in the Greek that means pastors, that is teachers. Meaning that if it, you are called to be a pastor, you are a teacher. You have to have the gift of teaching if you're truly called to be a pastor. So it's really four, right? And that's key because I think there's a lot of people who are pastoring, but unfortunately they don't have the gift of teaching and it shows. Okay, go do something else. Hey, serve God, praise God. Everybody's got to serve him if you're a Christian. But just don't be in the pastorate because as a shepherd, you're supposed to what to the sheep? Feed them. 
And how are you going to adequately feed the sheep if you don't have the gift of teaching, right? Pastor, that is teacher. Okay, he's talking about you're skilled in teaching. Okay, is what he says. Paul repeats this qualification in 2 Timothy 2, Titus 1. In the Titus passage, he says that the elders should be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Although this qualification indicates the elder or pastor should be uh, uh, especially gifted in teaching, the fact that the Christian men, hello, especially the father, should be knowledgeable about the word of God and capable of imparting that truth to his children is made clear by the passage of Deuteronomy 6. Go ahead and turn there real quick. Let's take a look. Well, I guess I don't have to be real serious about the word of God. I don't have to worry about that because uh, that's, just, that's just Pastor Billy. He's, just, he's the only one who's got to worry about that. No, as you guys all know, that southern kind of Elvis voice is a clue that I'm being sarcastic, in case you're wondering. Deuteronomy chapter 6, let's take a look. It's for all men. Okay, remember, this is a guideline. Yes, the immediate context is uh, dealing with uh, church leadership, but uh, the leadership is involving men in the church. So if you want to be a godly Christian man, then I would suggest uh, that's something that you need to do. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and let's take a look at that uh, real quick. And uh, this, is, this is a great passage. And it says this, he says there, uh, starting with verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with some of your heart. If it's not too uh, uh, inconvenient with your calendar, if you got, if you, as long as you got that yard mode. Anybody love rock landscape besides me? I love this stuff. See, you don't get that unless you ever live somewhere besides Vegas. I, anyway, but no, no, that's not what it says. Uh, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Now, dads, hello, guess what? Impress them on your wear. Children, and leave that up to the Sunday school teacher or the children's church person or the few minutes they're in there with Pastor Billy when he tells that opening corny joke, which you're still wondering, what's that got to do? No. He says, you need to do it. Talk about it when you sit at home. What? You were supposed to even read the Bible at the house? And, and when you uh, walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. How many guys would say that kind of covers about everywhere you go? Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, wherever you are, instruct your kids. So, so you can't cop out and say, oh, no, that's just for the elders. As men, we all need to become skilled uh, in the word of God. Also the fact that the instructions in Proverbs is from the father to the son lends support to this as well. The father should have a regular time of study in the Bible. This will enable him to have a close walk with Christ and also to impart this truth to his wife and his kids. Okay? Now, next one. Not addicted to wine. Robertson states this word means one who sits long at the wine. The elder is not to be a drunkard or one who drinks to excess. Most men should choose to abstain completely from alcohol since they're examples to their wives and children and certainly don't want to cause them to stumble in this area. Paul is clear that the man who is addicted to alcohol is disqualified from holding a spiritual office because it indicates what we saw earlier, his lack of self-control. You, 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 you didn't even pass the first one above reproach because there's a sin that everybody can point to. Not saying, remember, that you're sinless, but there's some giant glaring thing that everybody knows about that's not that guy what can you stick i'm not saying the guy's perfect but you see what i'm saying you're not demonstrating any of that stuff all right let's continue on uh he says this now here's one not pug we got wiener dogs did you ever get a pug no wrong one uh pugnacious uh here's another one uh an elder is certainly not to be a brawler right literally the word means to uh, to be a giver of blows uh uh, uh to, to give into violence this guy, he always wants to start a fight. This guy always has to win the argument. If the guy's losing the argument, if whatever, or if he wants his way, or he's playing politics, he just uses anger, violence, loud. Bible says if you're an angry man, you're a fool. And if you hang around with an angry man, you'll become just like him, a fool. What? You have no self-control. And you're just using anger to get your way. Hey, listen, not just in the church, but in the home. Okay? Isn't it great that when we're called of God to work out our differences, and the Bible says before the sun goes down, lest you give the enemy a foothold, okay? And uh, that when you're engaged in that conversation, that your spouse is, Yahweh! Isn't that awesome? You're so receptive. Oh, please speak to me more like this. I just feel like in divulging my heart to you. Yelling is verbal abuse, by the way. 
okay? And if it's not good for the home, it's not good for the church. I'm not saying you can't get passionate, but there's a difference between just being an angry, argumentative person to get your way to manipulate or just you have no self-control. You can't even control your voice. I'm sorry, you're disqualified. That's not a good character and not just for church leadership before man, okay? You need to control yourself, okay? Even if you gotta do this, at least you're demonstrating control, okay? Let's go on. Uh, be gentle. Well, see, this, this is the opposite of that, isn't it? Be gentle, uncontentious. Uh, he's just to be the opposite of a drunkard and a brawler. This, he's kind, he's forbearing. What's forbearing? Right? That's one of those things, like, you know, uh, when your wheel starts squeaking and it goes out and the, the oil gets out and you've got to put in forbearing in there. No, that's not what it is. Get almost on. You almost had it there, but that's not what it is. It means to put up with. What do you mean that sometimes in the church or, or sometimes in the family you don't get things out and uh, uh, you move? Is that the move sign? Oh, praise God. I got more to go. Okay. Uh, the, <laughs> that's a move hoof. Is that a hoof? Cows have hooves for those of you who want. Uh, but uh, if it, forbearing a put, means to put up with. That means you, you have self-control where you're not condoning behavior, but until you can get things worked out, you don't blow up. You forbear. You put up with it to work it out to a peaceable solution, to work it out as you work, you see what I'm saying? In the home and the church. That's a godly leadership, okay? Uh, he says, free from the love of money. Uh, this doesn't mean that an elder has to live in poverty. The only good uh, church leader is a poor one, right? No, it simply means that the greatest desire in his life is to honor God, as your next blank, not make a lot of money. Paul tells Timothy later that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and by some longing for it, have wandered away from the pace, uh, faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Uh, the primary desire of the heart of the elder, uh, as well as every Christian man, should be to what? Honor God through leading his flock or his family or just serving the church, okay? If he has love uh, for money, Leading the flock or the family is not his primary goal. How many of you guys realize that it comes in handy to get out there and work and provide for your family so that you can have electricity and that nifty invention called air conditioning? William Carrier, in case you're wondering, I actually looked that up. Jordan and I had a moment of silence because he wasn't used to this heat. That's <laughs> who invented that thing. Uh, but, and food, food, what a concept. Isn't that neat? Isn't it nice to be able to have that? So yes, you've got to go out there. You've got to bring home the bacon, so to speak. And you've got to provide for your family. But that's not your primary thing. That's just a means to an end. The first priority is something that's spiritual. It's God. And leading your family in that fashion, all right? Uh, he says this. He says, um, know how to manage your own household. Those elders who are married have this additional qualification. The home of a man will, in a sense, be a test case. There's your blank there. A test case, okay, uh, for whether a man is suited for the position, okay, uh, of an, uh, the, this, this position of an elder. Husbands who love their wives just as Christ also loved the church uh, and gave himself up for her know what it takes to show self-sacrificial love. Just shared this last week. Okay? We'll talk about this, Lord willing, later uh, in, a, in a marriage study, but there's four different Greek words for love. Okay? And I won't go into time what the other ones are, which unfortunately we seem to gravitate towards. Uh, and the world does. But the one that's used in the biblical sense is certainly here in Ephesians, but also John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It's actually a verb. Okay, it's not a noun. It's not an adjective. It's a verb. It's agapao in the verb form, or agape. But agapao, it's in the verb form. That means it's an action. Biblical love is an action. And the biblical definition of love, of agapao, is a self-sacrificial action purely for the benefit of another person, not a feeling. And so this guy in marriage has learned that I am going to sacrifice myself for this woman. It's self-sacrifice. Regardless if I feel like doing or not, I'm putting God first and what he's called me to be as that godly man, husband and father. I, regardless if she ever does her role, I'm going to stand before God one day. And I'm going to self-sacrifice myself even though my flesh might want to do something different. I'm not saying... Oh, here's one. We, you don't deserve it. Ooh, I like what one guy says. Don't ever, don't you ever, Christian, don't you ever ask God what you deserve or for justice. Because if we got what we justly deserve, every one of us, myself included, we'd be burning in hell right now. You should be 
grateful for his mercy, right? We don't deserve nothing but hell, so don't play that game, okay? But this guy, he's learned in marriage is that role that, listen, it requires self-sacrificial action, love. And that's what he says. Now listen, that, that, that now men who are investing their time in their wives and their children to show this kind of love, to build a godly character into them, will have little trouble showing that same love and concern for guess where? For the flock of God back in the church. That's why, listen, that's why he says, listen, if you can't do this to your own house, if you can't be that biblical leader in your own home, be it if you're uh, married or married uh, with children, if you can't even do that, if you can't sacrifice yourself or you're still stuck in there playing those games, well, they didn't do that and I didn't do that and you can't self-sacrificial uh, do what God's called you to do regardless of them of being that godly man, husband, and father, you're not gonna do it in the church because can, can you know something? You think it's uh, crazy? You think, you think the home life, uh, people play funny games like that? Wait till you get to the church. I know that sounds foreign, doesn't it? But sometimes the church acts like little kids, don't they? Who's going to be the godly man who will still do what is right even in the midst of the mess and sacrifice yourself even though everybody's still... And you say, I don't care. I'm going to do what is right. You can fight, you can kick, you can claw. We're getting out of this mess God's way. Where's the man? And if you, your, your practice place, your test case, as he says, is your house. And if you can't do it in your house, you're not going to do it in the church. Okay, move, move. Getting close to the move, move factor. Okay, praise God, we're almost there. Uh, and this way he says, in fact, Paul also touches on this theme, the letter to Titus, where he says that the elders must have children who believe. Those who struggle with managing their homes probably still have lessons to learn about this task. If they're placed into church leaderships, listen, their families will suffer further. They will suffer further and so will the flock. This type of care uh, takes maintenance time. A man must invest time and loving concern in his relationships with his wife and children. First Titus, uh, uh, in Titus chapter 1, Paul gives a list of qualifications to Titus. Um, the only qualifications listed in Timothy that are not found in Titus are respectable, gentle, uncontentious. Four additional qualifications are given in Titus. These guys, these godly men, are not self-willed, which means to be obstinate in one's own opinion, arrogant, refusing to listen to others. He's not, again, that kind of goes with the other one. He's not quick-tempered, blah, brawler, okay, which could easily cause him to be, there's your word, pugnacious, okay, uh, this guy's loving what's good, which means his life is devoted to all that is best and just and devout, which means his life is characterized by holiness. Not sinfulness, holiness. Not compromise, holiness. Not worldliness, holiness. And listen, underline this word, a deep commitment. Not a superficial, not a casual, a deep commitment to his faith. These character qualities will place the Christian man above reproach are things we should all strive to be, whether single or married, uh, through the power of God's spirit that indwells us. One last note, we've all blown it in some areas in the past. I mean, really blown it. How many guys can say that when this guy just happened to write this chapter this week, he probably really blew it. <laughs> Good interpretation. Uh, we need to be encouraged by the fact that God is the God of, guess what? Praise God. Anybody? Mercy, mercy. Second chances, man. Praise God. And we simply need to confess our failures, turn from our sin, and pray for God's strength to improve in these areas. Okay? Uh, let me, one thing, I'll just uh, uh, close with these words. Uh, MacArthur says this, the church leader, and again, this is not just, okay, that's just the pastor deacons. It's a, what's the context? A godly man, godly husband, godly father. You want to be a godly Christian man? Okay? is a man who's called to have an exemplary home life and his family is as a family ought to be the very model of Christian virtue. God is identifying a rather narrow track. Okay? You have to see how important this is because listen, he says, if the fence isn't set at this point, then why in the world would the people of the church feel bound to live at that level? That's why we have to set this fence. What's the fence? It's this chapter. It's this uh, qualifications for men. Men are the leaders. And the fence is the word of God. And the fence says, here's how you're supposed to be. And we have to set it at that. Not just in the home. And keep it at that. 
over time, the church rises to that. Okay? He said, there is no better place to see whether a man has a life committed to meeting the needs than to look at what he does with the people in his household. Does he care about them? Is his life committed to them? Does he work hard to meet their needs? If he doesn't, and he doesn't have the leadership manifest, then how could he ever take care of the needs of the church? He says, beloved, it is incumbent upon the church of Jesus Christ to begin to build the fence at the top of the hill. Listen, not to train ambulance crews at the bottom. One guy, I remember, I'll never forget this phrase. He says, you know what? I'm looking at the church, and this is years ago when I first got saved. He says, it seems like in the church, we spend most of our time dealing with flesh management. The, 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 there is no standard. The standard is so stinking low because we want everybody to like us. That we're all muddling around with this blah. And we're just trying to put band-aids on them. We're just trying to we'll get this or try not to beat each other up too bad. Just flesh, 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 flesh. Instead of putting the fence back up top where it needs to be according to God's word. Okay? He said it's time for us to have the kind of leadership in the church and in the home that would honor the Lord and keep people from the danger by setting a model and a pattern for them to follow. Build the fence at the top of the hill don't train ambulance crews for the bottom. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. And that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, 
We're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you for sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.